0: I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Each day, approximately two million people living in the United States receive their COVID-19 vaccines. Who gets vaccinated and when they get their doses is largely decided by each state's public health officials. And many states use age as the primary factor in determining who gets priority. My guest today, Dr. Govan Persad, is an expert in bioethics and healthcare law, and argues that legislators should think through more equitable options for distributing vaccines.
1: It makes sense to think not just about personal medical risk, but also risk of being exposed and risk of transmitting COVID-19 to others, and so I think some of the states that have incorporated age alongside other factors, for instance, lowering your age cutoff for access and- hard-hit neighborhoods or areas, I think that's a better approach than just using age as the only criterion or using it, say, alongside as opposed to combined with other criteria.
0: Stay tuned for my interview with Dr. Govan Persaud on today's episode of Examining Ethics. Many of us are currently facing questions about when to get our COVID-19 vaccine or may have just completed the vaccination process. So with that in mind, I'm just gonna cut to the chase and give you a fresh from my closet studio discussion with an expert in the ethics of healthcare, Dr. Govin Persad. Before I start the interview though, I quickly want to restate a statistic that Dr. Prasad mentions. For some reason, the phone recording couldn't clearly capture what he was saying. A little bit into our discussion, he says that, quote, there's a higher risk for higher rates of death in Native American populations ages 30 to 39 compared to white populations ages 50 to 59. I also wanna mention that we are not providing medical advice on this show, rather we're just talking through um, some policy suggestions. So keep both of those things in mind as I play this interview about vaccine equity with Dr. Govan Persad. We are having this discussion on March seventeenth, 2020, and I'm being really specific about the date here because the conversation around who should get a vaccine and when they should be able to get that vaccine is changing daily. With me today is Dr. Govin Prasad, a professor and researcher at the Sturm College of Law at the University of Denver, who works on issues of bioethics and healthcare. His recent research and writing centers on equity and vaccine distribution. Dr. Persaud, you have argued before that age should not be the main determinant of who gets priority in vaccine registration. And I thought that was really interesting because in the state where I live, Indiana, age is the main, um, the main sort of filter for vaccine distribution. And I don't know. I thought that made sense. You know, COVID kills elderly people at a higher rate. It doesn't seem like something you can, like, mess around with, you know, aside from those women who dressed up in, like, wigs, uh, I think down in Florida. But what would you say to to people like me who share that similar line of thinking?
1: Age can be a legitimate factor, among other factors, in prioritizing who gets access to COVID-19 vaccines. And certainly, um, you know, one virtue of using it is that it is something that people have easy access to knowing what age they are. But a pitfall, I think, of using um, solely age, basing it solely on age without considering other risk factors, is both that's going to be less effective at saving lives, preventing complications, preventing the other harms of COVID-19, and then also less equitable. So I think one example that really illustrates this is if you look at the CDC's data on death rates across different groups, it turns out that there were actually higher death rates in the CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. There's higher risk for higher rates of death in Native American populations aged 30 to 39 compared to white populations aged 50 to 59, which is two decades older. Yet in Colorado, where I live, we're not using age as the only factor, but everybody age 50 is going to be eligible, I believe, on Friday of this week. But there may be some folks who fall, in fact, into that higher risk group that I was talking about before, Native Americans age 30 to 39, who don't have that same kind of access yet. And so I think it can be legitimate to think about age as one of the factors But because age is only one of those predictive factors, it is both more equitable and better in terms of saving lives to try to incorporate other sources of risk. And that's especially true because, you know, people often focus on people's risk of dying if they get infected as the only thing that matters. But of course, for a transmissible condition like COVID-19, you also care about how likely somebody is to be exposed, how likely they are to spread infection if they are exposed and infected. So uh, I think it makes sense to think not just about personal medical risk, but also risk of being exposed and risk of transmitting COVID-19 to others. And so I think some of the states that have incorporated age alongside other factors, for instance, lowering your age cutoff for access in hard-hit neighborhoods or areas, I think that's a better approach than just um, using age as the only criterion or using it, say, alongside as opposed to combined with other criteria.
0: We just hit you know, roughly the year anniversary for the pandemic in the United States. And I'm remembering back in March of 2020, a lot of people, you know, had this line about, well, you know, COVID doesn't care if you're white, it doesn't care if you're black, it doesn't care what the color of your skin is, it's indiscriminate. And what I'm hearing you say is that that might actually not be true, right?
1: So it's a little more complicated than that. It's not that the risk that someone faces is... directly determined by their skin color or necessarily even by anything about biology. I'm not necessarily taking you to be saying that it does either. I think um, the best evidence that we have is that the reason why, you know, for my stat about 30 to 39-year-old Native Americans being at higher risk than 50 to 59-year-old folks who are white, or the other stat that kind of comes in that's sort of similar is if you look at the average age of death, um, this is again from a CDC study, it's about a, a decade earlier for folks who are minority patients than folks who are white. And that's not, I think, because of anything about biology, as best we can tell. That's because of the kinds of risks that I talked about before. I think two of the most important ones are sort of um, differential levels of exposure. So exposure if you're in a frontline job, if you're working in a grocery store or working in a meatpacking plant, as opposed to being a work-from-home person like I am. Or if you are exposed in crowded housing, because again, you know, many folks may live in housing that they have multi-generational, many people living in the same space, or just very much more crowded, where you have many more people living in a single, fairly crowded housing complex where it's not possible necessarily to avoid somebody with COVID nineteen in the hallways or in the next place over, in contrast to you know, living spread out in a single family setting or in um, more luxurious housing that makes it easier both in terms of uh, housing and then also the folks living in that nicer housing are often more likely to be in occupations that make it easier for them to protect themselves. Um, Some of my colleagues who work on this who are epidemiologists public health folks, they say it's not that it's somebody's individual race or skin color that's the risk factor it's the conditions that tend to be correlated with that having to do with occupation, having to do with housing and other factors, and then those, you might say, are often worse because of sort of historical patterns of systemic racism and other forms of disadvantage. So, you know, we have a lot of data on the U.S. on these disparate impacts by race. Um, I, I would suspect if you looked at disparate impacts by race plus economics, it would look even more stark you know, my family is South Asian, if you look at the Asian American category, that category has not been hit to the same outsized degree as, say, Native Americans. But if you drill down and look at subgroups, Filipino Americans in California have been hit very, very hard. And I think part of the reason for that is if you look at the housing and economic circumstances they're in, as opposed to some other subgroups in that same population of Asian Americans, they're ones who are facing tougher economic circumstances, who are exposed more at work, for instance. I think it's important to look at this interlocking um, set of factors. And again, that's sort of why I think the approach of looking at, say, lowering your age cutoff or even eliminating the age cutoff for access in these hard-hit areas, I think makes a lot of sense.
0: What are some of the other considerations that legislators might think about when they're deciding who gets priority in terms of vaccinations?
1: I think um, another area that It's worth legislators starting to think more about, especially as you're sort of getting more supply, is trying to transition from sort of having a passive system where you just set up a website and you wait for people to sign up to doing more sort of active outreach and bringing the vaccine to people. And that, I think, is a matter, again, not just of equity, but also of saving more lives. So if you look at you know going back to age, even if you only focus among folks who are older Americans, so setting aside the points that I talked about earlier about risk at a given age being different depending on occupation, housing, other risk factors, the folks who are older who are more at risk Are likely to be the ones who are going to have a harder time either sort of signing up through these very complex online websites or being able to travel a long distance to get vaccinated or wait outside for a long time in some of these states that did these overnight lines for vaccines. So, you know, the governor of Georgia yesterday, I think he put out a Announcement saying, you know, there's not as many vaccines in Atlanta as there is demand. Well, you should drive to another area of Georgia where there are more vaccines. And it's interesting because that's sort of a way of almost unintentionally, maybe, but you end up prioritizing people who are actually probably better able to protect themselves against uh, COVID-19 and who are healthier, those are going to be the folks who could drive for four hours to another site. So I think the, instead of focusing on that kind of passive approach of just, you know, make your website, have people sign up, being active in reaching out to people um, who are in your eligible groups, bring the vaccine to sites that are near where they live or near where they work, I think those are approaches that are going to be really important for policymakers to think more about. Another advantage of the active priority approach as opposed to passive is that then you don't have to do, you know, people with about, say, essential worker prioritization, they worry a lot about, oh, people will fake being a worker, this and that, if you're bringing the vaccine to a meatpacking plant and vaccinating on site, that gets rid of this need to do sort of verification at the vaccination site. So if you could do that verification beforehand in terms of who you call or outreach to, that can be both more equitable and more effective to try to do it at, at the site.
0: You know, I like this idea of an active approach to vaccine distribution so that makes me think that you probably wouldn't like something like a lottery system to try to make vaccine distribution more equitable because that still relies on the the passive approach, correct?
1: I actually think a lottery approach is better than first come, first serve because even though a pure lottery isn't affirmatively and intentionally prioritizing people who are at higher risk, so it's not intentionally reaching out to people who are in, say zip codes that have been harder hit, it still at least avoids disparately screening them out the way sort of first come, first served does by favoring people who can click on websites faster or who can wait in line longer. So I think the lottery is not great, but is better than first come, first served. So my, my colleagues at the University of Chicago, what they've done is that they actually just put all of their patients who received care through their medical center in the south side of Chicago in the lottery and they said, look, we'll randomize who we call to make them eligible for the vaccine. And when you call somebody, um, what they get is what's called sort of an a ticket where the person who's called can then um, schedule a sign up at their convenience. So and then they follow up with people who didn't schedule for whatever reason to see, you know, why they're not interested in getting the vaccine. But I think using that could have a a major advantage over, again, a first come, first serve. The first come, first serve tends to advantage people who are better at doing that navigation or who have family who can do it for them.
0: So along the lines of this idea that the passive approach favors people who have access to and can use computers who have the time to sit around and wait in line or set up, in a similar line, take me for example, would it be morally acceptable for me individually to call my local hospital and say, hey, you know, if you have some extras, like, Put me on your wait list, because I know a lot of people are doing that in a lot of states.
1: I think that is fine, but it would be better to do that along with something else. Overall, I think that people are too invested in trying to guilt people over individual actions in the pandemic, and especially over doing individual actions that are allowed. So I think you shouldn't be necessarily trying to second guess your health system about whether you you're eligible or not. So even if you agree with me that, you know, the 39-year-old Native American should be prioritized if they're at higher risk, that doesn't mean that I think that 50-year-olds who sign up when they're allowed to in their state are doing something wrong. And I think that it is a mistake to sort of deal with a systemic inequity by trying to make individuals feel guilty about making decisions within the system. It would be sort of analogous to, I don't know, Guilting people if they take their home mortgage deduction but I think that people who are troubled by the way the system is set up you know call your hospital ask them about that but also say you know if you believe this hey I've seen other hospital systems you know consider using a lottery for the wait list where they call their patients who've come in before or um, hey is there something that you as a hospital are doing to try to improve access or uptake for people in this zip code in our community where they're facing higher rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths. So I think that individual action is important, but it would be ideal if the individual action was about trying to improve policies and implementation as opposed to just individual people saying, oh, well, I'm not going to sign up or I'm not going to be on the wait list because I feel guilty about being ahead of somebody else. I think it'd be better if folks could channel that guilt into um, sort of working for systemic improvements as opposed to just channeling it toward kind of guiltily waiting at home. Um, so we're doing research, research for a paper now. And in doing it, I found that um, the state of Michigan had considered you know, sending more vaccines to areas that had had higher rates of COVID cases and deaths. And the legislature ended up saying, There was an amendment brought to say, no, we can't do that. We have to do it just by population and ignoring that. And so that was an area where the legislature sort of decided to override something that makes public health sense, um, saves more lives sense, and equity sense. But that's an area where if people had called their state legislator and said, hey, actually, I think it's a good idea to send more doses to areas that have are sort of more vulnerable on the CDC social vulnerability index, it could have made a difference. So I think there's real room for impact there.
0: So is this a question that we're going to have to face again at some point? Is there is there a way that we can prepare now for thinking about future pandemics, you know, future vaccine rollouts?
1: There are a lot of things that society could do to prepare more, and a lot of that is also things that are not sort of within my specific expertise. I would say first, um, there's this phenomenon of the prevention paradox, where people will spend a lot of money to sort of try to solve a problem once they know the problem is happening, but they won't necessarily spend that money beforehand in terms of preparedness. Let's say, you know, adequately fund your public health agencies, which in the U.S. at least, and I think in other places as well, the U.S. is particularly bad in terms of them being defunded, but overall have not been funded in a way that's commensurate with their um, health impact. And in part, that's because it's not always so obvious right away what the sort of payoff is. You know, if, say, you never have a COVID pandemic, people say, gee, you know, why are we spending all this money on the public health agency? It doesn't look like they're doing anything. There aren't any pandemics. What do we need them for? And so and it would be kind of like, you know, but I ever fix the brakes on my car, you know, they're always working. I would say in terms of setting funding and research priorities, try to avoid that prevention paradox and be more cognizant of the social value of investing in a pandemic preparedness and also being able to have the resources in place to either prevent or respond to sort of emerging pandemic diseases. One thing that's it's really interesting that I've talked about in some other work is if you look at the incentives for Pharmaceutical companies and for other actors, there's much less incentive to do something like developing a vaccine than there is to produce, you know, what people call um, "me too" or just as good drugs for conditions where they can get a much generous, much more generous, pardon me, um, reimbursement. And I think people have talked about this both for vaccines and for some other things like antibiotics that. Or incentives are not very optimal because you're basically um, not sufficiently incentivizing development. Now, we were very fortunate that we were able to get these COVID-19 vaccines efficaciously as quickly as we can. I think we need to build on that and think about how to, you know, have that kind of investment in preventatives for other kinds of conditions. You know, imagine COVID-19 is worse than the flu, but you have so many people who die of the flu every year, if you could get a sort of flu vaccine that was more effective or that applied across a variety of different flu strains, if you could get vaccines or other kinds of effective prophylaxis for conditions that you see maybe less in the U.S. but are pandemic in the developing world, like malaria, I think those are things that hopefully seeing the pandemic here will sort of encourage or lead to, to greater investment in you know, being ready as opposed to just being reactive. It also makes sense, and this suggests a way in which it's not just about sort of health or biomedicine um, or doctors or hospitals. Um, you know, people have talked a lot about following the science, the importance of public health expertise, and it's certainly right that often um, that expertise has been not paid attention to and it should have been. But some of the problems that we face aren't sort of necessarily just about the health system, there are more kind of systemic problems in terms of economic inequalities, people not being able to be home from work if they get sick, or not having adequate access to child care. And so it's important to think about health and scientific expertise, but there are also issues that I think the pandemic has made clear. That um, go beyond, say, just what people might call, you know, in ethics, bioethics or in policy, health policy, and sort of go to more overall questions in social policy and then thinking about where pandemic response has been most effective. You know, there have been countries that are much poorer, say, than the U.S., that were more effective at controlling COVID-19, it's not that they had a better, I think, health system, but it might be that there were other aspects of their sort of social policy response that were more effective. And so I think it's important to think um, not just about health policy, but about this broader question of policy reforms.
0: Something that I've just been personally, I've just noticed over the summer and, and this winter is just how bright a light COVID has shined on or has shown on inequity in our country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be really interesting to have people say in philosophy who are in epistemology think about this is, is a problem not just for COVID-19, but for a lot of other things, the sort of challenges of sort of identifying trusted sources of information. I think a lot of what's been a challenge in the U.S. is so many sources of misinformation or disinformation about (laughs) effective things to do in a pandemic. And so I think, you know, that happens for COVID-19, but you also see it for people trying to look for effective information about all kinds of things, not just about health, but about finances, about other kinds of policies. And so I think that's something that, again, uh, COVID-19 shines a bright light on that, but it also is an important issue, I think, across a variety of different domains that's going to be really crucial in terms of being able to respond effectively to any sort of issue.
0: Why do you care about this work?
1: So, you know, There are a lot of things that I care about, but where I think that my expertise as an ethicist or as a legal scholar isn't necessarily likely to have a ton of impact. Where having more impact in that area would be more about just doing something like giving money or calling Representative or whatnot. So, this is an area where I think I found myself hearing about it a lot because, you know, right now, for instance, I've been working on this piece about how legally equity can be incorporated into vaccine distribution plans. And it actually ends up being a complex question because. You can prioritize based on things like zip code, but in the U.S. you can't necessarily prioritize based on individual people's race, even though some other countries have done that because their constitution is set up. And that's an area where having this sort of legal and ethical background can have a really important impact in terms of helping people to choose and design policies that are going to be effective at saving lives, addressing inequities um, while passing legal muster. So I think part of why... You know, that's an answer, I guess, to why I find this an important area to be thinking about right now. I think, in terms of you know earlier on, you know, back in 2009, I wrote something about allocating scarce medical resources. How I got interested in those questions then, I think, was that you know at that point I was a fellow at the NIH in bioethics before I went to graduate school, and it was an area where it seemed interesting to me because it seemed like uh, philosophical ethics could have a real impact on improving people's lives and um, making things fairer for folks in a tangible way. It's not the only area where these things can matter. There are a lot of other areas where it can matter, too. But I think that's what got me interested in these um, issues initially.
0: If you want to know more about Govin Prasad's other work and to find more information on vaccine equity, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. The Prindle Institute for Ethics also produces a podcast called Getting Ethics to Work. You can find it at prindleinstitute.org backslash getethicstowork or wherever you find your podcasts. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show with editorial assistance from Hilary Koch. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePauw University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.